Right, welcome everyone to Fazlif's episode 16. Um, I have a special guest on today, Harry Smith. Uh, very pleased to have him on. Um, so Harry, I initially met through Instagram and I became aware of him just through posts that people have shared. And as I followed him more and looked into his work, he, he just came across as, as a very well-rounded uh, online coach, very well-rounded PT who had a lot of good thoughts on things. So um, this is Harry. Harry's done uh, a Shredded by Science um, certification. He's a graduate there with distinction. I think that's uh, Luke Johnson's baby, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. Um, the Personal Trainer Collective now, I think. They did a rebrand recently. Ah, excellent. Right. Um, so there's that. Also a recent Mac Nutrition uh, student uh, graduate, which we'll talk about. That's Martin McDonald's baby. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, I think he's, he's very precise and clinical in an industry which isn't. So I, I quite like him. Um, also, you've had five years plus experience as a PT and two years plus experience as an online coach. Uh, named one of the UK's best personal trainers by The Independent 2017, and also, like myself, uh, enjoys writing. So you've written for The Independent and The Game. So that's really cool. Thank you. Awesome. I've never had uh, any kind of introduction before. So. <laughs> I've had experience. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. uh, was there anything else you wanted to add? Um, not, not really. Just... Uh... I don't know. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great. We'll just leave it with that. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, it's it's nice to have an introduction. I I, I like to introduce my guests. But I guess it's a strange experience that people just talking about you. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah so we'll uh, we'll dig into the very first question. So we've got a, a good round of of nice questions here. Some some interesting ones. Um, some ranty ones, which I really like. So uh, let's get stuck <laughs> into it. Um, what are your biggest fitness pet peeves? It's a really broad question. So how do we think about this? Um, already like when the question came in through Instagram and then it's like you, you could almost have a different fitness pet peeve depending on almost where you are as a coach at the time and your sort of journey as a coach so it was almost um, it, it, and again it depends whether we're talking sort of gen pop or specific to bodybuilding or just all those things but yeah it's such a broad question so probably the biggest thing is um, for me as a coach is it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely related to fitness. It's people who have no kind of um, fitness industry job role or qualifications or experience thinking that they have a, a, an opinion on anything, really. You could probably know what I mean. Mm. Like when you're in a restaurant, for example, and then like, you order a Diet Coke and then you get abused by the waiter for ordering some <laughs> poison, yeah. like that kind of thing. Yeah. And then you're in that situation where you don't want to make them feel bad, but you also think like, oh, man, just if only you knew. And then you also feel like, um, so one, like it, it's from the perspective of talking to a coach, you're like, so I'm someone who's devoted my, essentially my life, my adult life to studying this kind of stuff. Yet you think that you potentially are more studied than me or other coaches in this field. And then, you know, you do that whole like smile and nod type thing. Like, oh, yeah, it's interesting that you feel that way. <laughs> and you don't just want to shoot them down. Yeah. But um, How about you? Have you got any thoughts on this area? Yeah, I, 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 I like that one. It's, um, it reminds me once I was in a car and uh, I, was, I was talking about something post-workout and I said I was going to have, I don't know, a chocolate bar or something like that. And, and one of my sort of fat friends <laughs> um, said, are you, are you sure you should be having that? You know, because you're a bodybuilder and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I just thought, it's strange, isn't it? Because people have these pre pre uh, preconceptions about what you should be eating, what fitness people should be eating. When the reality is, if you're more thoughtful about the situation, you might think, oh, actually, he's a, he's a bodybuilder or he's a coach or whatever, and he is eating that. Perhaps that should get me thinking about my own beliefs, but it, it doesn't normally happen that way, does it? They normally just no, blow it out. 
yeah, yeah. So if we were, this, go on, sorry. I was going to say, I had this conversation with my girlfriend, actually. Uh, and then I was saying, um, if a doctor kind of gives you advice, you don't, in, in like the consultation setting, you don't kind of disagree with them and then go with what your pre-existing beliefs were most of the time. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's interesting you say that. I'm going to kind of align my thoughts now to believe what you just said. Exactly. Rather than defending it. So I find fitness is an interesting space where uh, I think a lot of it is people don't realize that there is a whole sort of formal qualification system and that kind of thing and just believe it's just a guy who, who likes working out just telling other people how to work out i think that's a good point i, I there probably there probably is a lot of that like it's seen as a fairly casual soft profession when it's it's a lot more than that now particularly particularly over the last 10 years the type of research that schoenfelds have been doing and that he kicked off we didn't have any of that when i first started training we had um deepsquatter.com and that's where we used to get our information from which was just crap <laughs> When I, when I got yeah. started, it was all um, T Nation and bodybuilding.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if we, if we sort of take that question and move it to say, what are your bit, the biggest fitness pet peeves for? So that's something for gen pop. What about sort of, and diet? What about sort of in a training sense? In a training sense? One thing I've rented a lot about on, on my social media and stuff like that is uh, just uh, I found an attitude. It, it doesn't so much come from the i don't work a lot with enhanced guys or girls but it tends to come from that side of the industry in my experience is uh this kind of reluctance to deload or accept that deloading and reducing volume is a viable thing to do yes the attitude that you just need to push harder no matter what and it's like no matter what the problem you're experiencing is the answer is push harder push harder and you're like yeah but is it really though? Is that really the, the right thing to do right now? It's like your, your arm just fell off while you were training and you really need to push harder, like that kind of attitude. I, I 100% agree with that. I actually had this conversation because I, I still do deloads and even for my enhanced clients. And I had this conversation with an enhanced coach while he was sat there with a torn quad. He was trying to explain to me why my insistence on deloads was not a good idea. I'm <laughs> thinking this is an insane conversation. I mean, if you had yeah. taken, you, you wouldn't be doing that right now. But I think it's actually doubly important for guys who are enhanced because the degradation in the ligaments, the degradation overall health by these things that they're taking, you need a break, and you don't necessarily feel the pain. I, not to sort of over glamorize it, but there's there's far more aggression in the gym, which can force you to not see those things um and sort of cr and put a shroud up along some of the pain that you're experiencing uh and they those are the guys who tend to get really screwed over by 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 that so i think it's a sensible thing to do but i i, I completely agree with that yeah yeah i um i actually went to um one of the evil genius seminars in november last year with Roderick chavez have you heard of him yeah absolutely yeah yeah, so um, one thing, um, I'm probably butchering this and paraphrasing quite badly, The one thing they discussed there was that sort of deloads and low training periods are probably even more important to people on the enhanced side of the fence just because the rate at which you can make progress, can you can essentially Im increase your strength almost at a rate greater than your connective tissue and stuff can re recover from. So it's like, yeah, it's like you said, you can be training and having an amazing time and feeling amazing and all of a sudden pop something goes. And you need to be a lot more wary of going heavier because you can reach those super high intensities that just a non-enhanced person wouldn't be able to hit. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, in terms of what I've seen, that one of the biggest uh, afflictions with guys who are, who are on is the, the variability, the ups and downs in their approach to training. When you're, when you're natural and you're training, you, you pretty much only have your training and your nutrition to worry about. A lot of guys are enhanced. They can make such tremendous amounts of progress in short periods of time. They'll push that, push that, push that. 
get either burnt out or injured and then regress a ton and then come back and try that again. So you'd think guys you're on will make tremendous progress year round, but a lot of them just don't have the foresight to take breaks or foresight to slow down the progress and actually progress all year. A lot of them will just do this back and forth. I, I've seen people do that for three years and make zero progress. And those are guys who are blasting grams of gear. Um, it's yeah, it, it still takes some thought. It's not a, you know, you, you can still considerably fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think um, if we, if we turn the conversation to sort of more natural people and mm. it, it's almost, um, there's just, there's this thing that's come about recently. I think it's, it's like a, a natural thing that's come about as a result of um, people like Schoenfeld's research, Helms's research and their kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Their, their inclusion of, you know, like a reps and reserve system or mm. RP system is that a lot of guys, I think just don't work hard enough. Guys yeah. and girls from mm. the natural side of things. It's almost like there's a, there's a fear that you might, get too much like the guy with his hood up who's doing bicep curls right in front of the mirror so you have to stay really far away from that and keep your rpes at like four out of ten and i've definitely noticed myself because i work with people in person and online that um like a three reps in reserve is still really hard yes it's really hard and then you see it from clients and stuff like they'll rack the bar or they'll send in a, a video and they're like yeah that, that was three reps in reserve i'm like was it really because if, if you're with me in person, I would have said that was more like six reps in reserve. Because you kind of, especially on something like a leg press, like you almost always have one more rep when you're doing a leg press. Mm. And you can reach that point where, have you, have you ever tried doing a leg press to failure? It's like failure comes about 25 reps later than you expected. It's a horrible experience, yeah. Yeah, it's horrible, yeah. Mm. And I feel like, um, it, like it's, it's probably not as strong as a P, but I definitely feel like we, like, what do we know from watching things like Pumping Iron and seeing the success of like Arnold and the old school guys is that they didn't have reps in reserve or, mm-hmm. or uh, RPE. And that doesn't mean that, that, like, they didn't make progress. They made awesome progress and they just had the attitude of, like, just, just work really hard. Yeah. And it didn't necessarily mean hitting failure all the time. But three reps in reserve, if you think about it kind of logically, it is very close to failure still, three reps away from failure. So I definitely think if I could um, kind of, talk to every single natural trainee male or female out there i'd say like don't be scared to work hard because if we've got a, a decent training block in place where we kind of we ramp up the volume week for a week and then we also have low volume periods like deloads and a recovery period it's like even if we do hit failure a little bit earlier than we expected to it doesn't really matter because we programmed in the, the recovery stuff long term in the first place and we can also also regulate we don't have to stick to like oh you're not deloading for six more weeks so we need to keep pushing like if you feel like crap, then we can, we can deal it earlier. It doesn't matter. I think that's a great point. And it's, it's really refreshing to hear someone like yourself who's a, who's a coach to a lot of natural people and also is very evidence-based yourself say something like that. Because one of my frustrations with a lot of the evidence-based natural crowd in particular is the, the Schoenfeld laid down the definition of what evidence-based is. And off the top of my head, I seem to remember it's, it's looking at the research, also looking at your personal experience and matching what the individual wants. I don't see a lot of um, personal experience or client focus with some of the discussions that I see online from guys who say they're evidence-based. It seems to be all centered around the research. And that's frustrating for me. Uh, And it's nice to hear someone like yourself, who's very much involved in that natural evidence-based side of things, say, look, you've got to fucking work hard. Um, You know, so uh, yeah, I think that's a great, great point. I love that. Yeah. I've got the uh, the MNU definition of evidence-based here. Hmm. So evidence-based practice is the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best empirical evidence when making decisions about how to practice when providing information and care for clients and patients. 
Um, this best evidence should be combined with practitioner expertise and should consider the characteristics, states, needs, values, and preferences of those that will be affected. So if you were to summarize that, that basically says like, yeah, evidence base is great, but the research is, is never is, is never going to be as applicable as kind of real world experience. Yeah, that's great. And I think for me, this is really applicable because prior to roughly 10 years ago, it was all um, sports research. It was all based on strength and power. There's very little hypertrophy research around. So we didn't really have any of that, you know. So it's nice to have it now, but it's more of a bonus. Um, yeah. You can definitely see um, people kind of getting almost lost in the woods of, of the research when it comes to their own training. Like there's a couple of guys I've known over the years who, you know, everyone knows them, like those, those people in the gym where it seems like year in, year out, they don't ever seem to look that different. Not yes. saying that um, training from the perspective of looking different is everyone's goal, but in these particular instances, this is their goal because they've told me it. And then it's almost like, oh, you know, the whole, I'm going to spend 45 minutes stretching pre-workout and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'm rolling between sets, doing like um, band external rotations between sets of bench press stuff. And it's like, come on, mate, like, just train hard. <laughs> just train hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I think that, <laughs> that's great. I could. Uh, yeah, that that's a, definitely a topic I could I could rant about for a while. So I'm glad we brought that up. Um, so we've we've looked at sort of pet peeves around nutrition, pet peeves around training. Um, let's move on to another one, which is kind of related, and I like this: pointless and overcomplicated exercises. But I, I'm going to throw mine in the in the in the ring here because this is something I've ranted about quite a lot. Um, in the UK, I've noticed there's a lot of copycat coaches. And to me, that suggests that they don't really have a great deal of experience themselves. And the one thing that I see a hell of a lot of, because Trained by JP did this a few months ago, is banded Romanian deadlifts. And every fucking gimp who I see on Instagram is doing banded Romanian deadlifts. And they're doing them awfully with like more weight than they could realistically deadlift. Backs around it over. They look like a dog taking a crap. But because there's a band around their ass, everything's okay so that's my pointless and overcomplicated exercise um what about yourself so when when you say banded you mean like brett Contreras style kind of band around the the thighs yes and why oh actually a, a band around the a band around the hips to sort of pull them backwards um, oh yeah I get you, I get now i don't necessarily mind the idea but what frustrates me is the fact that it's it's all very copycat and you had a stream of people doing that right after jp and they tend to do it piss poor as well so the form is just terrible yeah. but you know we've got a band so hey we're good this is where i think um having experience coaching people in person and not just one time as an ongoing experience coaching people in person um is really really valuable here because i, I have done this kind of exercise with clients in the past i think i did it a few years ago and I learned a lot with my in-person clients that if you put a band around their hips while they're trying to do something like a Romanian deadlift it tends to make the form a hell of a lot worse rather than improve it because <laughs> it pulls them off balance and yeah. all those kind of things and then you know, people end up trying to do compensatory actions like for example an RDL the bar is supposed to stay, stay really close to your shin yes. and they're letting the bar swing out two feet two three feet in front of them to counterweight the, the fact that they've been pulled so far backwards by, yeah. by the band yeah I get that well, I think one of my pointless and overcomplicated exercises is probably controversial considering like I, I really respect everything Brett Contreras does. I think he's an awesome guy. But the, the insistence on kind of using bands and I think where Brett uses them kind of um, in, he uses them in an effective way and they're not the bread and butter of the workouts by any means. There's always the heavy hip thrust, the heavy hip hinging movements like deadlifts and RDLs yeah. and like heavy squats and things. And they're kind of peppered in more from uh, to, to improve the client's experience yeah. rather than I think to in, in necessarily improve the progress or the gains that they make. 
But then what you see when that gets kind of disseminated down into kind of like the normal people, um, a workout that is almost entirely sort of banded monster walks and banded bodyweight hip thrusts and those kind of things. And then, oh, glute activation, that should have been my biggest pet peeve. <laughs> so imagine if we had to activate every muscle the way that people say we had to activate our glutes. Imagine <laughs> if you're going in for a push workout and then you've got a band and you kind of clap <laughs> the band and people would be like, what the hell are you doing? And you're like, Activating my pecs, bro. Like, <laughs> yes. They don't need it. No, no. And if your glutes weren't um, activated, you'd probably fall over most days. So. Yeah, that's what I said to people as well. They're like, um, my glutes have gone to sleep. I'm like, how are you standing up then? <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's great. Yeah, the, the, the glutes have gone to sleep. That's, it's, why, why is it always the glutes? Why, why is it when you go to a physio, like, it doesn't matter what it is, you could have stubbed your toe, but they'll point out something yeah. with the glutes. <laughs> what, what is that? Or they say like, I've noticed the, the physios I know, a lot, a lot of clients are sent to them, they come back and it's like, oh, they say that I, I need to work on my external rotation. I'm like, yeah. yes. do you? Like, oh, it's just, yeah. It's, I think it's a, it's a popular thing at the moment. It's like one of the trends, is, especially with physiotherapy. Not that I'm a physio and I can't really speak for the grand body of mm-hmm. physiotherapists, but um, it's definitely a, a common kind of diagnosed problem at the moment is that, oh, your groups aren't doing enough. And I, I, I think it's kind of died down a bit now but in the online space definitely probably four four five years ago mm-hmm. having sort of what do they call it glute amnesia do you remember that <laughs> god yes yeah 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 it's like no matter what your problem was it's because your glutes had gone to sleep and they needed activation yeah and i understand the premise is just if you can like muscles like lats and any, pretty much any muscle in your posterior chain other than hamstrings is really challenging to recruit if you're not that an experienced trainee yeah like um one thing i get a lot with with my own clients is like trying to feel their lats and and also glutes too, because if you've gone from spending, like, if, yeah, if you're, if you're new to training, it's like you've never done any kind of hip hinging movement before. You don't know what it look, what it feels like for your glutes to be working hard. So if you kind of get a band around your legs and do some external rotations, you're going to really feel your glutes burning. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, oh, shit, this is what it feels like for my glutes to work. Yeah, and then there becomes, it's almost like a drug, isn't it? Like, you know, you have your first high and then you can't ever get it as good again. So it's like you have a a group pump from bands and then it's like you're forever chasing the, the banded group pump and never adding never really pushing the progressive overload i think you might have i think you might have solved the mystery of the whole glute amnesia thing because i think when you get beginner trainers this at least in my experience training rank beginners the movement they find the most difficult is the hip hinge they tend to just bend over um so perhaps perhaps that's where it comes from i, mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it does <laughs> uh, if we, uh, pointless never complicated exercise so uh, you could go right into the functional fitness sphere. Oh God! Sphere, uh, yeah. sphere, with like a like blindfolded single leg <laughs> pistol squats on the Bosu ball, like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's it's sort of like that show on what well, that that TV program on Netflix with uh, Sandra Bullock with the. Uh, I've not seen it yet, but there's all those oh, memes right, about yeah. it. Bird box. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's just like that. You're training yeah. for bird box, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't waste your time on bird box. It was <laughs> yeah, got it right in the gym this morning. Yeah, that, that's another one for me as well. I think and I, personally, I'm, I'm going to go out and limb and say pretty much anything other than perhaps an abdominal exercise on a boaster ball, it's pretty useless. Uh, or, you know, those. And half, even then, yeah. yeah, yeah. Even then, I only use it to create some form of hyperextension in my spine anyway. Like to, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. The ball. yeah. Um, I, one thing that I've spoken about a lot, and I think I lost a load of followers over it actually, was um, I did a big rant a, a couple months ago about um, above the knee rack pulls. Oh God, yes, please do rant on that one. Yeah, so. And, and in um, my, my audience, listen to this, please. <laughs> so above the knee rack pulls, it's, 
Well, what do we need to, to grow a muscle? We kind of know that we need to take it through an appropriately long range of motion. So if we take a Romanian deadlift or a deadlift in general, it's like your hamstrings are, are fully stretched and you want to make sure you keep your spine in either a neutral or slightly extended position. And then you want to make sure there's full contraction and a decent mind-muscle connection. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who it was, but someone posted a graphic of a, a yin and a yang, and it's kind of like the relationship between the load you use and the mental connection you have with the muscle. Nice. And I feel like that summed it up perfectly. Yeah, that's good. And then what I see with above the knee rack pulls is it's just an excuse for people like to just put a ridiculous amount of weight on the bar and then essentially uh, fit it up, if that makes sense, like an epileptic fit on the way up. Yeah, yeah. And then they, there's no eccentric of any kind. And that's another thing. We know how the, useful the eccentric is for, for training. It may even be more important than the concentric for, mm. for muscle growth. And you have absolutely no eccentric. There's no range of motion. And then, for example, I've done it myself in the past, like when I was a teenage and in a rush to get jacked. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the time, my deadlift one at max was probably about 140. I remember putting 220 on an above the knee rack ball. Wow. And then getting told off by the gym owner for making <laughs> noise. Right. And then at the time, me thinking, oh, what an idiot. He doesn't understand he what I'm training for. struggle. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I ranted about this on my very latest Instagram post. It was um, leg training principles. And uh, the third point that I put down was this, it's sort of a, a preoccupation with magical numbers. And we used to call them, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, Harry, it was a minimum macho poundage, so MMP. And that was like three that. plates on the bench, four plates on the squat, five plates on the deadlift. And I think there's this insistence that people want to hit those numbers. But in doing so, they'll do it in the lazy sort of way. And like they'll wrap their knees, they'll do partial squats on the Smith machine, spot will help them all to get four plate squat. And I find that just completely distasteful because you know, like we discussed with the uh, partial deadlifts, you're not really doing a great deal. Um, sure, you've got the weight, but it's not really helping you. And my point is as well, bottom line, 180 kilo squat, I mean, that's not shit anyway. So the, you're, you're doing all this crazy stuff to, to hit a number, which isn't in the slightest impressive. And the way you're doing it isn't impressive as well. So uh, yeah, that was my rant on, on that. That was one of my points of complicated exercises. I think it's the biggest ego lift out there that I can think of. <clears throat> yeah. Definitely. Other than a, um, uh, what do they call it? You know, they used to break the, in sort of, it, like, Matt Kro- Kropsoleski. Oh, area, gotcha. Kind of yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. The whole, like, uh, partial bench presses. Yes. And that Poliquin was a big uh, advocate of this kind of thing. Like, for example, doing a, like, an overhead press where you just train the top third of the movement. And then it's like, for example, set, you know, set the safety pins in the in the power rack high enough on, on yeah. like a bench press or an overhead press where you're literally only doing like two inches of range of motion, just like a slight elbow lockout. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. And I feel like the, the uh, above the knee rack pull is essentially that same thing for the lower body. Uh, I think it's so, horrible. Yeah. It looks horrible. It feels horrible. Yeah. I think Matt, and, I think Matt breaks bars as well. I think Matt Croc used to do the dumbbell rows as well. You know, the heavy dumbbell rows, which yeah. you just hoist off the floor and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's how I got my hernia. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn you, Croc. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's like probably, again, being a, a teenage trainee, yeah. just following, you know, like I had no coach or anything at the time. And it was just like, oh, so he's saying all I need to do is pick up this massive weight and hoist it. And it, it supported my, my biases at the time anyway. So yeah. I was going to do it. But, yeah. All right, that's uh, I, I like that. So we'll we'll move on to the next question. Um, so this is uh, going on to uh, a different sort of startup topic here. So, how to get back on track when motivation is low? Now, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this. I have my own thoughts on how useful motivation is anyway, but it'd be nice to hear your thoughts on this. Um, I think I know where you're going with that because that's where I was going to go with my answer as well. <laughs> 
Um, motivation is, is any program based on motivation or willpower is, is destined to fail from the get-go, I think. And I know from experience with lots of different clients now, so if you can't find a uh, sort of intrinsic motivator, something that drives you without you having to consciously decide on it, then I think you're in, in the wrong game. But often like, uh, it's like the whole, you've probably heard the, the phrase, lots of people push it about, try and focus on the process rather than the destination. Yes. I think that's where this comes in. If you can't find enjoyment in just training itself, then you know, just look harder for it or just accept that you, you might not be someone who's destined to kind of enjoy training. I was just reading a research article on math, actually. Um, Eric, I think it's Eric Helms, Mike Zordos, and Greg's um, research review. And there, there was some research in there talking about um, exactly this kind of thing, how some people just enjoy, innately enjoy exercise and some people don't. And it doesn't really matter how you manipulate the, the variables. They do, if they don't enjoy it, they just don't enjoy it. Yeah, very true. Um, yeah, what were your thoughts on this? I um, it reminds me of a a, ch a graph, a chart from the my own uh, background in my my other profession, which is education. And there's a sort of a curve where you should aim your your uh, tasks with students at, and the curve is related to motivation compared to difficulty. Now you have a sort of a central curve where people can sit along, and it's a good balance between motivation and difficulty. Now, if they get too far along the difficulty lines, they won't be able to do it. If they get too far on the motivational lines, they'll actually become demotivated because it's not hard enough. And I think in a sort of a, a similar way, motivation should be linked to the difficulty and the commitments of the program as well for the person. So if it's someone, because one of my questions in my initial consultations with clients is on a scale of one to three, just how hard are they, how, how committed are they basically? Um, so three would be, you know, they'll do whatever it takes. One will be, they'll do the minimum for the minimum results and they're happy with that. And I think to fit your program along your motivation difficulty curve is, is important. That sort of tells you a little bit about your personality, what you respond to. And it goes into what you're saying about whether you enjoy training or not and whether you enjoy the other processes and how far you can push yourself out of your comfort zone. So as for some people, um, living, you know, Dexter Jackson's life is just an impossibility. Um, for other people, they, they may well be able to do that, you know, very, very disciplined. Uh, and I think it, it relates to that sort of motivation difficulty curve. No, that's really insightful. I'm going to have to steal that question in my own consultation. <laughs> yeah, At the please. moment, I ask, how committed are you on a scale of 1 to 10? Yeah. I think that's quite a leading question because most people just check 10 because they, like, they feel like, oh, he's only going to accept me if I check 10. But that's not the case at all. It's more to, to learn a bit more about them and, like you say, their intrinsic motivations. So I'm definitely going to steal that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah, I, I like it because I can, I can put in my more nuanced um, uh, recommendations for those who are willing to do everything. So, I mean, like yourself, I'm sure in the time that you've coached, you've wanted to, I've, I've wanted to put my stamp on certain nutritional styles and, and sort of concepts for a long time. And I've wanted to look through the research and see what's solid. It's very difficult to do that. But, and it's, it's difficult to find something which is above and beyond just basically um, lifestyle factors and calories in versus calories out and good training. But uh, I've got a couple of things now which I do with the majority of my high-level clients, which just consistently work to do with like pre-workout nutrition and, and pre-bed nutrition and some like, particular nuances, uh, which definitely work. So it's quite interesting to be able to put that into play. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I try. I mean, I try and keep things as sustainable and easy as possible. That's a big theme of this podcast. But um, certainly for those type of clients, I think there are some particular nuances that you could give them which could enhance the results. 
Yeah, definitely. I find in my GenPop clients, like um, fasting is very popular at the moment. And yeah. I, I, I know obviously that it doesn't do any more for someone negligibly more than just make it easier to adhere to the diet. But I do find myself with GenPop people after the consultation and work with them for a short while, generally just recommending some kind of uh, breakfast skipping approach. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Like those kind of things. What's, I, while we're on that topic, because this is something that's interested me quite a lot lately, because um, I've been doing a lot of fasting. What are your what are, what are your experiences with your clients so far with how they respond to fasting and, and how that, how's that gone for you? So if I was to broadly divide it into gen pop and sort of physique slash bodybuilding focus clients, I generally say gen pop it works really really well. It seems to suit the lifestyle oh. and adherence is really really great. And I find the uh, the uh, almost the opposite with the physique and bodybuilding focus clients where um, I think they're they're slightly better. Uh, nutritionally educated or just nutritionally focused to start with and they second guess it or they have the fear that they're going to lose the muscle mass and then it makes training a lot more difficult because generally like they're more experienced trainees so they have higher volume per session they're stronger so they're higher intensity so yeah what you said about the pre-workout nutrition mm-hmm. I've definitely found like that's really important like for, my, for myself when I'm when I am in a calorie deficit I feel like whether it's psychologically or not I can't train with less than 100 grams of carbs in me yeah, yeah. for that day. I just feel like even if, if – I just yeah, it just feels like the session is so long and so hard if I don't get that in. Yeah, I think, I think there's evidence to support that as well. I think, you know, it, I, personally for me, I find when my carbs are very low, my reps will come down. Um, and I'd, I'd rather maintain some degree of, of, um, of workout intensity. So I quite like the pre-workouts for myself. If, if the rest of the day and the rest of the week is on a fairly heavy calorie deficit, I'll definitely try and fuel up a little bit prior to the workout with carbs and electrolytes um, to, to, to make sure my, to try and prevent performance dropping off. It's going to happen at some point. Yeah, I think that I kind of, it's just made me think about how important pre-workout routines are. Mm. I've done a post about this before a few months back. But um, like, because I'm in a diet at the moment, a vanity diet, um, just looking, like, just how important uh, the routine is. So I know that before my sessions, I, I want to have 100 grams of carbs in at least, sort of, an, at, well, at closest an hour to the workout. And then I also want to have my uh, pre-workout capping. So whether that's in um, form of a, an energy drink, like a monster, or if it's um, an actual sort of, uh, pre-workout supplement or even just a double espresso mm. because I have to get that routine in and then I have my 10 minute warm up on the next side bike where I, where I review my training session what I'm about to do think about the numbers I'm going to do and that kind of thing and if any one of those factors so pre-workout meal pre-workout uh, caffeine or pre-workout warm-up or just I suppose workout warm-up if any one of those things isn't right or doesn't feel right I, I tend to feel that the, the session suffers for the most part yeah. and I definitely encourage um, pre-workout routines with, with most of my clients to be honest because I feel like it's very much like the Pavlov's dog kind of scenario you're getting your body ready to do the session do you find that your focus in the sets gets impaired yes yeah yeah me too yeah that, that, that's what I was going to say just going back to fasting for um, for a second yeah. regarding sort of competitors do you often find that the, that's also a result of them perhaps being a bit more neurotic in general and maybe more prone to having odd relationships with food yeah I think that's a factor Mm. Um, I make it really clear with uh, my competitor clients and physique-focused clients. Like I try and, from the get-go, prepare them for life after whichever event it is that they're dieting for. And I have a little bit of a mantra that I say, like, your leanness is not your best. And I kind of drill that in as best I can. And then also, yeah, I definitely find that they are, tend to be a more neurotic personality type. And they also tend to 
um, almost second guess the training. Like they'll do, where do you find if a gen pop person might ask you a question before they do something? So can I do this or can I do that? Whereas I find with the, the competitive clients, it's more along the lines of in their check-in. They're like, oh, by the way, I did X, Y, and Z last week. And then you're like, oh, did you? Right? <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, didn't very, telling me first. Yeah, very similar. Very similar experience. You see, you see the numbers in, in the sheet and you're thinking before you listen to the check-in or watch it, you're like, hmm, there's a strange decline in performance here. I wonder what caused that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very similar to experience to myself. Uh, excellent. Uh, yeah, I love that. So we'll go on to the next question. Um, cool. just, just one thing to add yeah, there. I tend to do. find the competitor and physique clients push the fasting a lot harder. And mm. I think that shows their personality type as well to an extent. Whereas, say, gen pop client might fast until 12 or 1 just because it suits their lifestyle better. Mm. I find that. Um, and I've been there myself when I've been dieting for photo shoots and stuff in the past. Where it's like it hits 12 and you're like, oh, I could go another hour. And then it hits one, you're like, oh, I've got another hour. And then it's like four or five and you're like, oh, how long can I push this for? <laughs> because then you start thinking like, oh, if I get to like 8 p.m., I've got 2,500 calories to eat. And then I definitely find they, they tend to lean more that way. So I don't generally recommend fasting. I just explain like it's something you could do, but it's probably not optimal. And in line with the um, muscle protein synthesis and all that kind of stuff, like if you really want to maximize muscle mass, I probably wouldn't recommend fasting. Yeah, I completely At least agree. chronically. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, I, I, I quite like fasting at the moment because I'm, I'm sort of dieting as well. I, I've been doing a slightly longer fast, 24-hour fast. Have you had any experience of those? Um, I haven't, not deliberately. Only uh, like when you go on holiday and you're traveling yeah. and you didn't prepare, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience. But like yourself, I don't, I don't ever recommend it because you don't necessarily know how people are going to respond. So unless I've got a client, like I've got one client who's been with me for three years and um, I've talked about it with him just because I know him inside out now. Uh, and like me, he's a little bit older. So at this point, I think we can be fairly confident that he's not uh, predestined to, pre uh, predisposed to having an eating disorder. So I'm quite confident yeah. in discussing that with him. But yeah, I, I tend not to recommend it. I think it's, um, I like it, but it, it can be too risky, I think. It's interesting that you say that. I, I love that aspect of coaching where you work with people for a really long time. And I think that's where the value of coaching really shows itself. It's not in the kind of initial program you get off the back of the consultation. It's in all the tweaks and changes you make over the years and months. Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, I've just completed a 12-week uh, strength block with a powerlifting client, and uh, I'm really looking forward to the, the second one that we do because that's when I think we'll really see some good gains because we can actually learn from the first block and, and, yeah. and personalize and individualize it. Um, but, so, yeah, awesome. That, that's great. Right, we'll move on to the next one. So is it possible to increase muscle mass during a deficit uh, and maintaining muscle on a cut? Okay. Um, bluntly, yes, it is possible. Mm. Yeah. And I, it's really hard <laughs> and it depends on on where you are in your training journey if you've never trained before it, it, i feel like this is kind of like i suppose being being a coach you feel like this is really bog standard basic information but then you forget that a lot of people don't know this kind of stuff yeah but yeah you can increase muscle mass in any kind of um uh, caloric state whether you're isochloric or in a calorie deficit or um in a calorie surplus but we know that the, the easiest and most optimal way to do it would be in a caloric surplus just because when you're in a deficit or even a maintenance, there's um, your a lot of the energy you're consuming is going into recovery processes rather than adaptation, and that kind of thing. Well, adaptation in this case being uh, muscle growth. So yes, you can increase muscle mass during deficit. I've definitely seen it. I see it a lot with clients at the beginning of um, our relationship, typically because most clients tend to start with a cut 
I don't really know why. I think perhaps <laughs> I think it's just the way it tends to go. And often they've never had any kind of structured training program beforehand, or one that really just is well structured. They might have had a structured one, but not a particularly well structured one. And I definitely see muscle mass increases during a deficit, but I've never seen crazy body recomp in the way that um, a lot of people kind of make out. You know, where they're like, oh, her calories stayed the same, but she dropped ten kilos of body fat and gained five kilos of muscle mass. I've, I've never experienced that. I experience, you know, just general um appearance improvements despite being a maintenance so you know there's been favorable changes but um i definitely say like uh it's like what's the phrase like you can't ride two horses at once right exactly. you could but it'd be you, you could but it'd be really fucking hard <laughs> so just do one like ride the diet horse for a little while and focus on but it, it, it doesn't that's not to say you shouldn't focus on growing muscle mass in your training anyway sure. because the best way to maintain muscle tissue and this goes on to the second part of the question as well mm-hmm. the best way to maintain tissue is to do the thing that grew in the first place so strength training at an appropriate intensity for an appropriate amount of volume and i tend to find volume goes volume required to maintain muscle probably goes up slightly in the deficit mm-hmm. just because there's there's more catabolic factors involved than when you're in a turf off so you, I would increase muscle mass slightly, but I tend to reduce the intensity. So, whereas in a in a general, uh, say someone's in a chronic surplus, I wouldn't be afraid to go into the sort of six to eight rep range. Mm-hmm. But when someone's in a deficit, I, I tend to push it a bit more to sort of six to ten, eight to ten. Does your RIR differ in those two circumstances? Um, I, I give broader ranges, to be honest. When someone's in a deficit, I tend to say actually that's the wrong way around. I'll give broader ranges when they're in a surplus. Mm-hmm. Just because people are much more energized anyway, but when they're in a deficit, I know that your what would be your say one rep in reserve in a surplus will feel like your your minus one rep in reserve when you're in a deficit. Mm-hmm. So I tend to give more uh, probably lower rep in reserve targets, which would be higher um, RPE targets. So yeah. I start the block around two reps in reserve, three reps in reserve, whereas I might start a massing block in three reps in reserve or four, just because that you, you kind of need a bit more time when you're massing to figure out what's, yeah. what's going on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, definitely. I, I find regarding the uh, sort of bull, uh, growing muscle during a cut, I think what I've seen for the first six to eight weeks of a cut, there seems to be a period where you can do both. Um, and I think yeah. this kind of relates back to why you don't immediately go from a cut to, from a cut, uh, sorry, to a cut from a bulk. Because I think in my discussions with other coaches, there seems to be hypertrophic processes don't, always just stop um you know abruptly i think there's they take a while to really lay down the the uh the muscle mass I, I this is probably fairly theoretical but just what i've seen like i favor quite long bulk periods like my last bulk was eight months and i think that gives you plenty of time to really lay yeah. down all the muscle and I finish those hypertrophic processes yeah. right yeah brilliant um and i think that's 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 probably the reason why so the the hypertrophic processes just take a while to really solidify. So I think that's why, yeah, as long as you're not going into an immediate huge deficit, I think you can probably carry on getting some muscle. Yeah, I think that's interesting as well, actually, that uh, our body's much more nuanced than kind of research would have us believe. I think a lot of people who read research and things like that, they take a bit of a reductionist attitude towards mm. things like muscle mass and muscle growth. And at the end of the day, like, we, we know fuck all about it. Like, yeah. we're, we're guessing. Even even at best, we're guessing. It's not We, we don't physically have the tools to measure Mm-hmm. everything that's going on like we know like for, for example like the mTOR pathway and things like that we know about those now but no one had any idea what they were sort of 15 20 years ago that's right yeah, yeah. it's almost considered like uh information everybody should know mm-hmm. and then oh, who was it i think it was listening to uh the 3dmj podcast recently talking about how as soon as 
uh, people or researchers think that, oh, we found it. We found the key to hypertrophy. hypertrophy, And then they restrict whatever that, that key thing is. And then yet muscle growth still occurs. And it's like there, there's, even though we felt like this was the main thing causing growth, if we restrict that, then growth is still occurring. Then obviously that's not the main thing. Yeah. And I think our bodies are just so much more nuanced than we can ever understand. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, just what were you going to say? Just finish up. Um, I was just going to say that, um, like the whole, why would your, it's like, it's not like there's a switch when you go surplus growth and then you go into deficit and then you go growth stops. I think that it's very much like a, a putting the brakes on a train. So a train's traveling at a full speed. So that would be a muscle, muscle hypertrophy kind of machinery at this point. Um, so you put the brakes on, which is when you change your kind of caloric status from their surplus into a deficit. The train doesn't stop dead. It takes like quite a while for it to slow right down. And I think that that's that growth people are seeing in those first sort of six to eight weeks, as well as the, just like I say, the structured training program and overload and uh, smart recovery principles and those kind of things. Yeah, that's a really good uh, analogy. I like that a lot. Um, I think uh, a good, another good sort of example of that is um, fat loss and multiple pathways to fat loss. I think people used to believe that uh, if insulin was present, they just you just couldn't burn fat. But um, sort of, there are other methods of doing that. And why would bodybuilders inject it if that was the case? Precisely. This is where I was going with that. So you know, you yeah. can you can lose fat if you're injecting insulin. You can. There are other sort of pathways for fat loss, and I think that's a, that's a clear it's a clear sort of mechanism as to why. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so going on to the the next question. Um, this is this is really interesting because I'm I'm a big fan of of, of Martin McDonald. Um, just, yeah. Um, what were your major takeaways from the MNU course? I've been asked this quite a lot recently since graduating. Um, I didn't realize how many eyes were, were on the course until <laughs> I kind of finished it, if that made sense. Mm-hmm. But I definitely felt like when I enrolled, it was uh, like a really exclusive, not very well-known thing, a bit like the Shredded by Science Academy. Mm. And then I feel like over the year that I did it, it's grown hugely and along with kind of Martin's own um, fame, so to speak, or just renown. But um the major takeaways I found from the MNU course are the, the improving your confidence as a practitioner. I know we don't do courses, so we come in arguments, but I definitely feel like now I'm in a position where there's almost no sort of nutritional uh, what's the word? Uh, philosophy or kind of method or perspective someone could throw at me that I, I don't feel like I'd be able to at least attempt to explain or um, argue back from, if that makes sense. Like if someone yes. says like, oh, my, my coach said that. Um, artificial sweeteners are making me fat I'm like, well, I feel like I could handle that and um, so I'd probably relate that to just confidence as a practitioner and what it did help a lot with was um, understanding uh, what, what the main thing from the course is that it has a real practical application and practical focus not just on the research which I think is really important because I've done uh, lots of reading like you, we, we read research and you, you kind of often find yourself thinking like and how, how the fuck did that help me like when you've read through the, the yeah. whole the whole research paper and what MNU is really good at is saying like this is what the research says and this is how we would actually apply it in a clinical setting of a client but they have a real focus on a real client focus which I really respected and really found helpful especially being a coach myself it was always it was never because um, research often takes a perspective of it's like the researcher's own perspective not the client's perspective and what MNU did great was like this is the way the client is probably feeling about this so and there's a lot of psychological stuff in there too, like self-determination theory and that kind of thing, which are really, really helpful. But the main thing is just, I feel like I understand, I've said the main thing about five times now, there's lots of main things. Um, but just general confidence 
and my own knowledge base feels very deep now. But obviously, I know that if I don't know something, that there is an army of MNU uh, qualified nutritionists that can help me out with like the mental lab and that kind of thing. Have you have you enrolled on MNU yourself? I've not, no, but I've been interested in doing so. So um, I I like that. I certainly like that first point about the confidence. And I think I'm I'm at the point now as well where I. It's, I'm, I'm quite. I'm a lot more confident in just giving my opinion on things, just because you you get to a point where everything sort of clicks to a certain extent, and it's nice to, yeah. you know, and that's that's good. But no, I'm I'm a huge fan of Martin. I, I think I may well do that at some point in the future. I'd, I'd relate it a bit like uh, to something like jujitsu. I don't know if you've ever done um, jujitsu, but I I learned the traditional jujitsu style, so the Japanese jujitsu style, mm-hmm. and the main reason I learned it was from a self defense perspective. I wanted to feel more confident if I was ever in some kind of environment that would require um, violence or defense. Yeah. And just because of my own personal experiences and my own. And then what the jiu-jitsu did in a way, it kind of made you, it, it increased my confidence to a point where you're even less likely to get in an altercation like that because you feel confident that you could handle yourself. And as a result, you don't feel you need to handle yourself. And I'd say MNU has kind of done the same thing from my own sort of nutritional knowledge and coaching knowledge. Mm-hmm. But now I feel like I almost don't need to, scream from the rooftops and prove myself because I can yeah. if that makes any sense at all yeah no so absolutely that, that's just yeah. confidence yeah I think that does confidence self-assuredness of your own knowledge yeah. is is really important because then you're more confident with your clients you're more confident with your approach and I think it lends itself to quite a lot of self-evaluation um, and I it sounds like his thought his course is very you're describing it as a perfectly evidence-based course this is not just research it's the client's involvement and it's also experience and and I think that gives you a well-rounded view on things. So you're able to yeah, yeah coach with, with confidence. I think that's great. It's fantastic. It's yeah. given me the confidence to be much more assertive with clients. Because in, in the past, I feel like I've done clients <laughs> yeah. with the service where um, I've almost tried to meet them where they're at a bit too much. Yes. And you almost don't value your opinion and experience as a coach enough. So when you have those kind of discussions in the base of clients where they're like, I want to do X because so-and-so from work said that X is great. And then in the past, I might have been like, okay then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of work that in and again yeah. it all depends on the context but i feel now i'm much more likely to say um that's a really interesting observation but they're wrong yes so like i have kind of have that confidence now which i wouldn't have had in the past and my results are kind of definitely showing that yeah whereas i was a bit too soft i feel like i've now got a good balance between being soft and assertive and yeah. just yeah improve your listening skills if anything just from the hours and hours of listening to Martin's voice you've got to do <laughs> yeah I, I yeah I like that about be, being more sort of clinical and, devi- and decisive with with clients and I had that conversation with somebody recently a client recently and he wanted to do something it was a social obligation that he had to sort of do and uh you know he, he was talking about how can we basically prevent he was on a diet this is how can we sort of prevent this from effect, affecting my you know progress and you know and while I may have tried to sugarcoat it previously and just said like well we can kind of work around this I said look it's going to affect you. You've decided to do this. <laughs> Ideally, I'd rather you didn't, but let's try and do some damage control. Um, and that, you know, I think that would, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm a lot more focused and I think clients appreciate that because they see where you're going uh, with things. Yeah. Your vision. I think it puts you in that uh, coach role a lot more. Whereas if you're always kind of compromising, then it's kind of, what is the client getting out of it? Exactly. Like part of the reason they invest in the process is because they feel like you are more knowledgeable than they are and you can give them answers where they couldn't get them themselves. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, were there any other, what, what else did, what are all the kind of things that they talk about? What sort of specifics? Was it nutrition? It was mostly nutrition. Yeah, mostly nutrition, yeah. definitely. Um, I'll, I'll get the uh, modules up, actually. Mm. So, 
just just to read through what some of them are i just give you an idea mm. but um my favorite parts of the course were definitely um the so the, there was the the, it, the course kind of starts with research methods and understanding research methods which i think is really 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 That's good very useful yeah yeah and they go through biochemistry and kind of those kind of things which is it's the basics you get from any kind of nutritional course or personal training qualification but it just goes in a lot more depth mm. and then what it did really well was um kind of myth bust but not just say oh this myth is wrong it would present a, a myth you know like a, a tabloid headline or something like that and then go into a lot of depth with the research and what the general scientific consensus was on that particular topic, mm -hmm. which is really, really helpful too. And then um, one of the, the biggest value I think is in the working with specific, specific population. So there's a lot of information on IBS, uh, pregnancy, mm -hmm. uh, obesity, and sort of uh, cardiovascular disease, elderly, diabetes, both types, PCOS, and like cholesterol, eating disorders. Just it, that that was where the real value was for me because that kind of information is really hard to find. It's not been collated in any particular place. And though the information, particularly on, say, um, diabetes, it's so mixed with just people's own bullshit opinions and stuff like that. <laughs> that it's really hard to find what to do. And I definitely felt pre MNU that when I've, because I work with uh, gentle people too, like I've said, mm -hmm. I've definitely found pre MNU um, it was really challenging finding information i felt like i could actually give to a client with diabetes yeah because yeah, yeah. they'd be like i kind of found this thing online but i don't really know if we should do it or not whereas the, now i feel like yeah I, I actually am someone who can help you of course you need to be working with a, a specialist like you can't see the specialist every day but you can see me every day yeah, yeah. So i do yeah. think we have a an obligation to be knowledgeable in those areas even if we're not qualified to be and that that list of things you just said i mean that that rings true so much you know uh eating disorders diabetes all that kind of stuff the, those are all clients that we deal with on a regular basis so that that sounds really useful yeah yeah the eating disorder stuff was really interesting um just about the classifications because people use the term eating disorder where they shouldn't a lot of the time and yeah. because people don't it's a bit like the fitness qualifications thing people don't realize there's a formal classification system yeah, yeah like yeah. with actual symptoms and diagnoses and stuff like that and then, yeah, definitely. And then learning how to deal with it as well is um, it's not, it, someone's not thinking rationally, so you can't deal with it rationally. Like those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, well, my, I think it was my fourth podcast. I had a expert on eating disorders on, and he, he taught me through all the classifications, but prior to that, I actually didn't know. So it was a very, very popular episode. Um, and it was very informative for me, but it, it definitely runs deep. And it was quite interesting what he was saying about how you can move from classification to classification. So if you've previously had anorexia, for example, and you may well move to say something like orthorexia, um, you're not actually you're not actually cured. It doesn't tend to leave you, but you you can sort of be a functioning or you know orthorexic in a sense. Um, so yeah, it was all, all yeah. Um, I've got um, experience with anorexia nervosa and bulimia with people close to me, and it was. That that came right at the beginning of my own um, coaching kind of journey, and I feel like that experience. Thank thank God that person is absolutely fine now and healthy and like really into fitness themselves. Good. But that I think was probably one of the things that shaped my the way I coach people the most. Just learning how to help someone, or just not even help them, just learning how to like be with someone who was like that, yes. and just having the patience and the nuance and the understanding. I feel like that was just invaluable as a coach for me. Yeah, yeah. For me, that that whole sort of talk was very interesting in the sense of dealing with particularly bodybuilding and physique clients, and sort of trying to sort of do things in a way which weren't going to exacerbate or bring out predisposing conditions like that. So really, to move them away from 
thoughts and processes which might encourage things like that to happen, which uh, it's, it's your responsibility as a coach. And to talk openly about it as well, because if you feel like you're, you're detecting kind mm. of disordered eating habits or behaviors, not to just ignore it and hope it goes away, because it won't yeah. just acknowledge it, explain to the client what's going on. And often they, they already know and they're well aware of it before you were. Yeah. And just getting out in the open, just like you say, it, it helps you learn how to work with it yeah. and understand if working with it is appropriate and all those kind of things. Yeah, I think that's vital. It's so it's it really is the coach's responsibility to be educated on stuff like that because you, you probably see it all the time on social media. Just some of the things that you'll see, some of the recommendations are just so cringeworthy, and you just yeah, think, you know, that's really going to damage someone. And we we joke obviously we joke around quite a lot. I follow that um, anti diet uh, dietitian on 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 Instagram. She's really good. Uh, we, you joke, we joke around. I'll I'll link it to you later. We joke around quite a lot, and we sort of poke fun at odd recommendations but the reality is a, a lot of people follow these things and they can really damage themselves physically and mentally so while we do have kind of fun poking f fun at these things there's a really dark undercurrent in terms of where some people are in their journeys to fitness and uh you know i, I so i i, I think it, personally i think it's fair game you know we, we should be trying to poke holes in these odd nutritional um concepts because on the other side of that you have somebody who's struggling and is listening to these things and thinking they're actually going to help them when in odds are they're probably going to hurt themselves doing so. So I think we do, we do have a continued responsibility to carry on poking holes at, you know, odd dietary approaches. I think coaches themselves have an experience to understand their own biases and their own perhaps disordered eating habits yeah, as well. Yeah, totally. I do see that a lot. Yeah. Coaches where, not that I'm qualified to diagnose, but with the knowledge I have from MNU and things like that, you see other coaches where you're like, if you were a client, I would be referring you out. Yeah. Like, and then in a way, it's like, are you in a position to be giving advice? And you've got a lot of your own things going on that perhaps yeah. like me dealing with first. Yeah. I, I, that. I, uh, I would say on average, there's far more dumb for Korean enhanced circles than there is in natural circles from my experience in, in mm. that regard. Far more, far more. Yeah, um, I'd say that's in my observation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. So were there any more things from the MNU course? Um, the meeting people was a big part of um, online coaching, which like online coaching, especially uh, being evidence-based or even in-person personal training, when you consider yourself as evidence-based, when the most industry isn't, oh. it can be really lonely. And <laughs> prior to yes. MNU, I was really feeling that. Like, like, oh, is there no one who thinks the way that I think? <laughs> and then finding it and then going to the, I definitely recommend going to, even if you don't do the course, go to some of the uh, live lectures and those kind of things and the, the talks because you really do get to meet people there. And one thing that MNU's done really well, or Mac Nutrition as a company, is create a, a really conducive networking environment mm. where the day is built around sort of long lunches and then there's always uh, parties in the evening. Not, not like the party makes it sound bad, but they're just opportunities to mix with people. Like, sure, yeah. It's a social gathering. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And that was truly invaluable because I've made loads of friends now that I consider friends, close friends. Mm. And we talk quite a lot. And then when I think about how do we actually meet, like we met just because we saw each other's names on the enrollment list, basically. <laughs> so I definitely think from that perspective, like cre creating, because we are like, we're the, we're the next generation of coaches. Like yeah. we're going to be the, the Alwyn Cosgroves and the Brett Contreras and those kind of people yeah. in the next few years, like writing books and stuff. So, get to know them because you never know who they're going to be yeah, and true. just they might be feeling the way you were because I was feeling really lonely at one point like mm. um, starting to consider the idea like is can I be 
can I handle all the bullshit, basically? Like being yeah. the only, I feel like I'm disagreeing with every other PT I ever talked to. Yeah, totally. Like it was so draining. And then finding this side of the industry was really, really good. Yeah. It's been, I've had quite an interesting experience with that. I've, I've ended up coaching, online coaching, a lot of local PTs. So in that way, I'm sort of broadening that. I'm, I'm almost spreading that sort of evidence-based message through them, which is, which is quite nice. But um, I don't know any other coaches in my local area who are evidence-based. Like, I don't think there's any at all whatsoever. There's probably a couple of coaches, local coaches that I respect, but the majority of them, you know, it's, there's, there's not a great deal out there. So I think that... I don't respect them, but with an asterisk there. <laughs> yeah, I, I respect them in terms of their practical experience and their ability to get yeah. people on stage and on shape. And so from an evidence perspective, um, it's, it, it, it's not... It, let's just say it's not an interest of theirs. So um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think the, the socialization is great. It's one of the reasons why I've, I've loved doing this podcast. It's been great to get people on like yourself who, you know, we, we share we share a lot in common really. I mean, over our sort of backgrounds are, are somewhat different in terms of the people we train. We, we share a hell of a lot in, in common, which is, which is great. So it's fantastic. Um, really interesting. Yeah. So we'll, there was one last question, which I put in, um, which I'd love to hear your opinion on. It's, it's more of a, it's more of an opinion piece really than anything else. But you, you remember uh, a couple of months ago, there was a sort of big blow between the, the volume slash intensity versus intensity crowd. Uh, and it was sort of spearheaded somewhat by, uh, Michael Sotelo on one side and, and Lyle McDonald on the other. Um, on however, whichever way you want to approach this, what, what were your thoughts on that entire situation? Um, my, I have my own sort of thoughts on the training style, but I, I have my thoughts on the way that it was presented and the way that it was, I, I, I call it a bit of a debacle. Like I didn't really like yeah. the way it went down personally. Um, I think, you know, we talked about meeting with us, meeting with the people who are evidence-based just now. I think while we are a really small percentage of the greater industry and the greater industry is, is a lot is shit for the most part, I think we agree on quite a lot more than we disagree on. And I think I thought a lot of that really did us a disservice um, because it was a lot of infighting and we tend to agree on 90% of the things. And with a lot of these things were getting blown out of proportion, which was causing a lot of these evidence-based geeks to, and I say that in, in, the, in the sense that when they don't have experience, these evidence-based yeah. geeks to take sides. And I didn't really like that. I, I personally felt that entire thing was, was rather distasteful. Um, but but it, whichever way you want to approach this, whether it's from a, your own training recommendations or from the way that I just approached it, what, what were your general thoughts on that? Um, I agree to an extent i think it was making a big deal out of nothing mm. to be completely honest like um i think there was like lyle was always someone who's been pretty outspoken about his own opinions mm. and uh, he is a researcher and i've read lots of his books um well most of them i don't think anyone's ever finished a lyle book they're about <laughs> three thousand pages long bit in and out but, um, <laughs> yeah I, I respect both of them like, i've met uh, dr mike a couple of times and he is like, a, like you you can tell straight away like he's a truly great mind and he's got a great perspective and uh, I, I don't know if you listened to the actual debate itself, but I felt like yeah. the, the kind of atmosphere around the debate was questionable, but the actual debate itself, I felt like was quite a good one. Mm -hmm. Just in the sense that um, there was, I think, at least the way Mike presented his side of the argument was that perhaps Lyle might have been misunderstanding the, the research itself. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm not a researcher. I don't really know. I, I felt like in general both those guys agree on most things like, like you said like we generally agree more than we disagree on most things yeah and then i think it was very much um like it's research at the end of the day it's one study what what can we do with one study yeah, like, yeah. it only has limited application and I, I definitely felt like giving it that huge top that, that that kind of huge platform 
wasn't necessarily needed. And I know Schoenfeld himself doesn't really talk openly about that research, I think because of the, the kind of waves that it made in the first place. Because mm-hmm. being a researcher himself, like, he, he knows that, that like, a study might come out next week that shows the complete opposite effect, so that you can't put too much, um, kind, of, kind of can't hold one study up. Like, you know, in The Lion King, where they're holding up, like, similar things. <laughs> like, you can't just hold up one study like this. And I think the reason it, it had such a big, uh, impact in the industry is because it, it supports a lot of people's existing biases, which is that more is better. I agree. Uh, yeah. Even um, even around the sort of Lyle and Mike debate, there were talks with people like James Krieger, who works on the research too. Yeah, James. And he, he had put a really good, put it into perspective to me in a, in a great way. Mm. He said that it, it was like, it's not like they started people at like 40 sets per body part or something like that. And I think that himself, he, he, he himself trained the very high volume approach. But a lot of that's with isolation exercises and it's ramped up yes. over time. Yeah. It's not like he's jumping right into the deep end. It's, it's year, I think it's over a year now of, of just careful monitoring and adding sets where he can and taking them away where is appropriate. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, like it comes down to what he said. Like, well, I've definitely noticed it with my clients. Like, I remember when the, the uh, muscle strength pyramids came out, their volume recommendations were, were quite low. Mm-hmm. And I adopted a lot of those with, with my clients. And I, I did find... Um, like muscle growth, I like it's quite hard, and it's probably my own misapplication of that. But then again, also low. That was like a low recommendation on purpose because you don't want to just fuck someone up by putting them on like a hundred sets a week. And I definitely found that um, I'd, I'd been finding before that research, and I guess that shows the danger of just following research blindly, even if it disagrees with your own experience. Yeah, that I I found that before reading those kind of research studies, I was finding that my female clients in particular were responding really well to really high volume and high frequency approaches. Yeah, absolutely. And then I moved away from those and I found that I've generally moved back towards them, but it took this new research coming out to validate my own um, experiences and opinions of it. And I felt like moving back that way would, would be more accepted by the client as a result of the, the high volume research coming out. But like I said, I wouldn't put too much stock in one research study. Yeah, and uh, it was an interesting debate. It was almost pitched like a WWE fight. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was up to Michael and Lyle thing. And uh, at the end of the day, like they're both respectful to each other, as far as I can remember. And it was it was interesting. And uh, I definitely like listened to another uh, debate between the two. I think I, I quite like Lyle's dry sense of humor as well. Like when he talks yeah. on re- uh, on podcasts, I find it I find it hilarious. Yeah. But, yeah. From a entertainment, yeah. From a from a research standpoint, I I sided more with Mike. I've in a different mm-hmm. field. I've done my own research, and I uh, it's it very much is what Mike was saying. One study isn't to make or break situation. You you look at the direction that the bulk of the research is taking, and then you sort of take that as a whole. Like when you when you do your first piece of research, and you add it to the body of knowledge. It, it's not supposed. It's not going to be a seminal piece of work. And yeah, like, it, it, it happens. It doesn't happen. No, um, you're you're adding you're modifying slightly and adding to the body of knowledge. And sometimes it goes in one direction, sometimes it goes in the other, but it's the direction of the overall research, which is important. I think that point was lost. Uh, and also the limitations of research. Well, you just, you just don't get that much funding for, for doing stuff a lot of the time. Um, you kind yeah, of have to make do with what you have. Um, Renaissance periodization themselves do fund quite a lot of research, which yeah. I find really, really cool. And, and yeah. it's not something that, that Mike sort of sings and dances about as well. He's a, he's a really nice guy. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, yeah, He's an incredible public speaker. I definitely recommend um, seeing him talk in person if you can. Yeah, I'd love to meet him at some point. I'd love to meet him and also uh, Broderick Chavez. I we have some uh, mutual friends, uh, so it'd be nice to to talk to them, particularly uh, Chavez. But uh, yeah, fantastic, um, awesome. Well, uh, we're gonna call it there, Harry. If uh, if that's all right. If there's any, if you've got anything else to uh, any any closing points that you wanna say to the audience? 
Uh, I don't think so. I think we've covered <laughs> most parts quite well. At least I think so. I don't know how they'll fit past it. But. I think so. I think it was a really good chat. It was it was nice to have you on, definitely. Um, so, no, thanks uh, for you. yeah, you're very welcome. So we'll uh, we'll call it there. And um, thanks for for coming on. And uh, we'll see everyone next time.